Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from LFBI and across the Living Faith Fellowship. When we come together, we're talking about all kinds of different things. We're talking about theology, ministry leadership, uh, church history. Uh, all these different types of things are intended to encourage you in your faith and, and build you up, edify you, and provide you with knowledge that you didn't previously have. Now, one of the topics that we talk about a lot is the topic of missions. And there are names uh, in the missions world that we hear all the time, names like Hudson Taylor or William Carey or Mary Slessor. Names like these are, are common, and, and we know about them, we know their stories, but there are also so many missionaries, men and women of God, who've gone out and sacrificed their life, given, given their life away for the sake of the mission uh, that we don't hear about, that we don't know about. And so this series that we're doing on unknown missionaries has been really profitable and, and cool, especially for me to research and, and to consider people that I've never heard of. And we're hoping that it's a blessing to you as well. For this chat, for this conversation, uh, we have invited Pastor James Fife, pastor of missions at Midtown Baptist Temple, but also professor of missiology here at the Bible Institute, uh, to discuss a man named Columba, Columba of Comsil, I think. I think I'm saying that right. I think so too. It's Gaelic. And nobody speaks that anymore. No. Nope. We don't have any Gaelic experts around. Not, not that I know of. I don't know if it should have more of a French sound to Comsil. it. Comsil. Comsil. Uh, Comsil. I don't know. That's a fancy. That's a fancy way. It of saying sounds it. fancy. Yeah, it's too fancy for me. I'm gonna stick with Seal. I like it. But but besides that, his name Columba actually has significance. There's meaning behind his name, and so let's let's just start mm -hmm. with with his name. What does his name mean, and why is that significant to who he is? Yeah. So his name, you know, and again because of of languages and translations, you get a couple different ideas about what his actual name, birth name was. Mm -hmm. It's actually a little bit hard to even nail that down. So Columba is the the version of it that we get, but his name was Colum, C-O-L-U-M, would probably be the best way to, okay. to get his original name uh, from the Gaelic, mm -hmm. or possibly Colum Sile, kind of that combination of Columba and Comsile, mm. or Comsile, however you want to do it. We're, we're not we're not etymologists, so no, <laughs> no, not at all. Um, but but, but anyway, it comes from the Gaelic. We'll yeah. get to the important part. It right. means you know it means dove, mm -hmm. uh, and, and more specifically, dove of the church. Mm. Uh, the Colum part is is dove, and, and then that back end part has to do with, with the church. Mm. There's also this idea that uh, his birth name uh, was Crimthan. Yeah, I saw that, which actually means fox. Yeah. So, which is also an interesting, it's hard to maybe verify that, but it is interesting, you know, because you see a lot of times through biblical history, mm -hmm. just of God himself changing people's names and occasionally people deciding to change their own name for various reasons. Um, and so maybe he was originally named uh, as a fox and decided he would rather uh, give his life to Christ and uh, be a dove. Yeah. And, and Jonah's name. Mm-hmm also means dove. And mm -hmm. we often refer to Jonah as kind of the first missionary, or, or at least the idea that he is the, the first biography of a missionary in our scriptures. Yeah, And he, and he was a dove. And mm -hmm. so, you know, Columba as a missionary, I can see him really wanting to own that title. Yeah, exactly. And you'll actually see some parallels between Jonah's life and Columba's life mm -hmm. uh, in a few ways. But yeah. yeah, that same idea of going to to an unreached so, people. so what time frame are we talking about? Because we're going we're going way back on this one. 
This isn't like right. just 50 years ago, 100 years ago. We're talking about centuries and centuries. Right. So we're going back to, uh, he was born in 521. Okay. So, um, you know, it's just a few generations removed from the apostles, right? Mm-hmm. So after the death of Christ, you had the apostles and, and the early church fathers. You're, you're just a couple hundred years from them. Uh, yeah. So this is quite a ways back. And, and about 150 to 200 years uh, past the establishment of the Catholic Church, which at this time right. would have had a strong foothold in the southern parts of Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much where he was at, though the influence was felt. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in the early 300s uh, to mid 300s, yeah, you had all, all of what you're referring to happening then. And then you're also, you know, on the other end of that, you're about 100 years before uh, the Dark Ages. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Dark Ages started around 500. So you're actually getting into the early, yeah. early Dark Ages yeah. is actually where you're at. So, And so also the Christianity that, um, that is there is, doesn't really fall into you know, the Christianity that we know. And I think that's important mm-hmm. for us to under, kind of create that framework mm-hmm. because it's not Catholicism. Mm-hmm. It, it, it probably looks a little bit like you know, what we saw in the, in the Great Awakening, mm-hmm. the way that Christianity is spreading across Europe. It's a very, very new. So he's on the other side of this Druidic faith system mm-hmm. that had been so common. Tell us about that and, and, and how that changed the place. Yeah. So to put it uh, again, a little more context, he's mm-hmm. born in Ireland. Okay. I don't know if we said that or not. No, I, think no, I don't think we have said it yet. <laughs> so we're in Ireland uh, about, you know, 500, early 500s. Um, he was actually himself born of royal descent. Mm. He had uh, kings. His great great grandfather was Niall of the Nine Hostages. Oh, that's so cool! Isn't that a good, isn't that a good name? How do you yeah. get a nickname like that? I don't know. <laughs> How? Do, I mean, Fife Briscoe is Fife cool? Fife is super cool. Actually, well, that actually plays into is what we're talking any, about. Okay, today. well, but you know what's not cool? Briscoe. Yeah, you know what it means? No, what? I think it means broom. No, oh, all right. Or like bramble, you know, like the end of, end of a broom. Okay, like the old style brooms. Yeah, that's like like the m- traditional like witches like broom a tumble, where you made tumbleweed and like a bunch of sticks. Yeah, like yeah. the stuff that you burn and like kindling. Well, I think that's what my name means. So not that cool. Okay, well, not like l- this. Live live up to it, bro. Keep your house clean, I guess. Nile of, n- of nine hostages. Nile of the nine hostages. Yeah, so that was his great-great-grandfather. He was a king, uh, apparently a very powerful guy, and okay. he took some hostages and, and had some fame. Wow. Um, so he, he was a descendant of that. He himself, Columba, uh, was willing to give up his own, uh, you know, some of the own a- ancestry and the power that came along with who he was born into. In to order focus to, on his faith. To focus on his faith, the follow after Christ. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so you're coming up in... In Druidic Ireland, the Druids had a faith that, you know, from there actually predated Christ by a few hundred years. Mm. Um, They were kind of known as the wise men of their time. So you could think back to, you know, the Egyptian astrologers types of guys. They they would use various means to gain knowledge, so enchantments and such. Uh, They did practice human sacrifice. So there were some really wicked components to, I mean, not that divination isn't wicked in itself, but human sacrifice as well. Uh, a lot of secrecy came in uh, to it as well. Um, you know, yeah, so they would do secret things, societies. Secret and... societies, practicing in caves and in the forest at night. So, you know, a lot of um, 
just a, a very different yet religious society. Yeah. Which by itself is an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look at missionaries that have gone all over the world into all different places and what we would say were unreached, untouched places, they show up and they find that there's religion there. Yeah. Religion had permeated the world and the hearts and the minds of man long before, you know, Christian missionaries had come. Right. And the same thing was true here. And another thing that's interesting to point out is the idea that in a lot of places where there isn't missions representation and there isn't Christianity, that witchcraft is there. Right. Witchcraft fills the void in many societies, even today in tribal communities in parts of India and Africa, Mm -hmm. there is essentially just witchcraft there. That's what tends to fill the fill the void. And and that's true f- for the Druids too. And it, it had exactly. a strong foothold and, and, and um, that mythology that associated with that was very powerful in that time until Christianity came. And- right. Yeah. And a couple of key components to kind of tie all of those things together is secret knowledge. So mm-hmm. the Gnostic idea is that there's some knowledge that we have that you can't get. So, mm-hmm. You know, the Druids, the Gnostics, the anyone else you want to yeah. put in that camp, the witchcraft. Magicians of if, old. If I can, yeah, I can look yeah. into a, the liver, or I can get you knowledge some way. Right. Uh, and then sacrifice, actually human sacrifice mm. is a big part of that everywhere. Right. But yeah, so Christianity comes in actually through Patrick. Yeah. Uh, into Ireland. Yeah, um, let's reclaim him real quick. Okay, so St. Patrick yeah. of Ireland is neither a Catholic saint nor Irish. Right. Uh, he lived a couple hundred years prior to... Um, to Columba that we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so Patrick is actually born in Scotland, uh, kind of grows up in, in the British uh, Rome, um, was taken hostage by Irish invaders. Mm-hmm. and was taken to Ireland as a slave. He served six years as a slave in Ireland. And then um, really his conversion ties kind of that time period. Uh, he kind of grew up with a, a Christian faith uh, in that it was part of his family, mm-hmm. but not personal. Um, through his hardships, he gave his life to Christ, got set free, ends up back home and was content to stay with his family, you know, in Rome for the rest of his life until uh, God called him back to Ireland to go back to the people that that had enslaved you. So he returns to Ireland as a missionary, not as uh, a Catholic. He, in fact, had some very distinct beliefs from the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Catholic Church, as you mentioned uh, earlier, was growing and, and had a big foothold in Rome, was spreading into the British Isles, uh, wasn't there as much. Uh, Druids were still kind of the ruling religious uh, group there. But Patrick uh, opposed the Pope. He opposed the hierarchical system of kind of papal parish church systems. Uh, He was in favor of of marriage, marriage of, Mm -hmm. of, you know, the priest or the pastor. Mm -hmm. And uh, opposed the scriptures as well that the Roman Catholic Church held to. So so Patrick uh, held to a, a, a Latin scripture that, that predates Jerome's Vulgate, held to that as, as true scripture. He passed that on to his disciples. Primarily Finian was uh, a, a key disciple of Patrick. And then Columba is a disciple of Finian. Right. So you're a couple, you know, you're a hundred years. You're but the a influence couple generations is felt, down. Yeah. You know, and, and the same thing, those same types of things can be said about Columba, right? Like mm-hmm. these are guys that, that the you know, the Orthodox church and the Catholic church and all these large, um, you know, institutions have claimed sainthood for these men. Right. Despite the fact that there was really no association, these men were, you know, they have their own flaws, they have their own doctrinal, you know, idiosyncrasies. But at the end of the day, these were evangelists Mm -hmm. and they weren't, they weren't promulgating 
any church institution. Mm-hmm. These are church planters and evangelists. Right. And we're talking about St. Patrick and we're talking about Columba. That's the distinction um, is, is that they're out there to convert people to faith through personal salvation, right. not through an institution. Yeah. So Patrick, Finian, Columba, all of them uh, were later sainted. You know, Patrick, 400 years after his death, the Catholic Church come back, comes back in and kind of reclaims a bunch of history. Right. Uh, as as a means of subduing the people, mm-hmm. right? You 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 take the the heroes and and you make them yeah. your put them on your team, and then uh, the people are more likely to follow. So none of those men uh, were Catholics. They they strongly stood primarily on the authority of Scripture above all else. So no human authority uh, interjected into the work of God through His His Word and His Spirit. Tell us, uh, you know, about Columbus training. Uh, how how was it that he came to a place where he had knowledge of the scriptures and had a, a vision for missions and where did he get his worldview? Where did that come from? Yeah, so he uh, he was born into uh, a Christian family uh, because of Patrick's influence. Now Christianity has driven out the the Druid majority. Christianity has mm-hmm. has gained a large foothold in Ireland by this time, uh, so much so that early on, again, he was willing to give up his you know his his power and his fortune. In order to follow Christ, he entered into um, what we call what, what is commonly called in that time monastic training. It's a, a monastic style of, of living and training. Yeah, a lot um, of times when we think about monasteries, we think about Catholics, right. but that tradition is not purely a Catholic one. I mean, uh, it, it is an idea that the way, same way we would talk about seminaries, perhaps that's what a monastery would be: is a place where you yeah. go to study your faith system. Yeah, so at that time, there was the, the parish church system driven by Rome, mm-hmm. which again was kind of top-down, everyone submits to the man on the top. And in contrast to that, there was the monastic system, which was independent. Uh, it was driven by the Word of God, but incorporated with that, it was, it was communal in its, in its approach, and it incorporated all aspects of living. So they also worked on things like you know farming and um, agriculture and 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 herding you know cattles on building um but maybe similar to some of the kind of traditional ideas of uh of monks they did have stronger routines mm-hmm. uh, within than we do today and they incorporated prayer worship um but evangelism as well into right. life so they did have some prayer times that they were scheduled they did have a worship times um but it wasn't you know dark hoods dark right. dark yeah uh, stone buildings right. where they just chant all day. Which is akin to the Druids, right. which, you know, would have probably been um, culturally for them uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So keep telling us about this time in the monastery and his development there. Yeah. So he, he uh, you know, goes to, you know, primary school and and decides he wants to follow after Christ. So he enters into the monastery and starts studying uh, scripture uh, from the time he was uh, from about age 25 to 32, there was about a seven-year period where uh, he was very active in church planting. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, you know, one of the big focuses of uh, that monastic life was was actually teaching others. So it wasn't it wasn't inclusive. It wasn't uh, you know it, it was actually there wasn't a re- he wasn't promoting a religious class. He was yeah. he was trying to draw common people into the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so it said that he himself had planted up to 300 churches in Incredible. that eight, seven, eight year time period. 
uh, of of his young twenties to early thirties, and monasteries. Yeah, when I say churches, I really yeah, mean yeah, both monasteries, churches, yeah. so training institutes, right? Uh, independent places of of, of worship and, and biblical and study, biblical study in mm-hmm. life. Yeah, yeah, which is a phenomenal. That's an incredible number. Oh yeah, right. And we have to do. We have to mention that a lot of these things that we're talking about, these numbers. I mean, it's so far, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so long ago that there's a lot of things that we really don't know about him. Right. And, um, but that he has that kind of reputation as an evangelist and right. as a church planter. He definitely did that work. We know that for sure. And that, yeah. that so much so that he became famous for it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Some of it could have been exaggerated. Is 300 the right number? We yeah. don't know. How big was the fish you caught seven years right. ago? It always, yeah. It's bigger every time you tell it. Yeah. So there's yeah, a little yeah. bit of that. Right. But we know that that he had a huge impact because he had disciples. Aiden uh, is one by name who who carried on that that you know the same tradition and 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 preaching and teaching. Uh, so you see his influence across Ireland before he left, and then ultimately mm-hmm. we're going to end up in Scotland. Yeah. So how did he end up in Scotland? What were the situations surrounding his departure? So again, that's a, a little. There's Twist, a couple there's, twisty turny. There's two different versions. Yeah. Uh, again, we're because we're so far ago. Uh, so one is that he um, ended up in a fight with Finian over one of Finian's psalters. Yeah, and Finian, again, was the guy that discipled him. Right, right. So yeah, Finian was what we would call the, you know, the pastor of the local church. Mm-hmm. He was the leader of that monastery. Mm-hmm. Um, so Finian had a psalter, that, and part of the work that they did there was actually to copy and, and handwrite the scripture. Right. Uh, so they were actually uh, involved in the preservation of what they believed to be the true text out of Antioch. Um, it's said that that um, that Columba himself had handwritten 300 copies of the New Testament. So there's that number again. Yeah. You know, they might get conflated somewhere. Right. But anyway, so he, he gets in a fight with Finian over Finian Psalter. And um, which when I read that, like, what does that fight look like? Like, I wrote that. No, I wrote that. Like, what is it they're arguing about? Yeah, so a Psalter was a, a, a would be like a personal copy of the New Testament. Right. That not only included the the scripture, but maybe some notes, some other right. things added in. It was, it was a very personal thing. Mm-hmm. They reprinted those as well. He copied one that I guess was supposed to be for Finian, um, because it belonged. It was his personal Psalter, and Columba assumed that he could keep it since he wrote it. Yeah, it, it became a a, a fight. And then the story goes that it escalated to the point where it was a small battle, like like clans got involved. It mm-hmm. was still it was still a clan driven society, so there was a little bit of separation there. Uh, so his clan and Finian's clan fight, and there and there's various again various stories as to how it went down. Some people died, or maybe three thousand people died, <laughs> which is a lot. That is a lot. Yeah. So somebody died. Yeah. And uh, because of that. Um, he Both was forced men, to flee. but but yes, but Columba in particular felt, um, you know, very repentant over that, and either was forced to flee or chose to flee. So mm-hmm. that's one story. The other story of how he left Ireland is that um, his a family member of his who was a prince ended up accidentally and accidentally killing somebody, mm. and he fled to to Columba's home for protection. So think of an Old Testament. Uh, type of setting where uh, you know this idea of accidental manslaughter, and you can go to 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 seek refuge. Right. And 
And the the Avengers of Blood essentially came and and drug him out of the house and murdered him and pried him away from Columba's hands. And so Columba felt very remorseful over that, kind of felt like that blood was on his hand. One of the two stories... It's a very Shakespearean version. It is. Yeah, the other one was like Braveheart. Yeah. And then the second one's like Shakespeare. Yeah. But which one's true, we don't know. Which one's true, we don't know. But there is, you know, there's a heart theme that kind of unites both of those. Somewhere along the line, somebody dies and Columba feels some remorse for that or responsibility for mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in one of them, it has Columba taking direct ownership for, for killing uh, and being involved in the killing. Uh, and if that's the truth, you know, I think there's an interesting just component of that, that side of the story is that we're, sometimes we look at uh, you know, missionaries of the past and we think, man, they're just exceptional people and mm-hmm. they did exceptional things. Um, but I think in this sense, Columba is a lot like Jonah or like Moses, mm-hmm. where perhaps he did start a fight over something that he didn't need to fight about and then people ended up dying over it. And that's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, but it makes them human. And it reminds us that in spite of the past, in spite of massive failure, uh, God can still use repentant and broken people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Moses and Jonah both, I don't know if Jonah ever really got repentant, but he got used. Yeah, he, he wrote the book. He, th- he wrote the book. That's pretty self-deprecating. It is. He got repentant enough to go. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the show. We're going to pause right here for just a second so we can hear from one of our students from the Living Faith Bible Institute. Hi, my name is Chris Allred. Uh, My wife, Lindsay, and I are at Oakland Heights Baptist Church in Cartersville, Georgia, where we've been for about six years. We've served in a lot of different ministries, uh, but our main function has been to lead the middle school ministry for the past five years up until this past August where we've transitioned into leading our high school student ministry. Uh, We've been taking LFBI classes for a few years now, and and they've been a, a really big blessing in our life. They've been instrumental in our training and our growth process. Proverbs 11 says that there's safety in the multitude of counselors. That's exactly what LFBI has been for us, a multitude of counselors. Uh, not only do we do we get some biblical knowledge and some doctrinal training, but we have pastors and missionaries teaching these classes uh, that have a lot of experience in ministry and are able to, to not just teach us from a book, but actually uh, pour some wisdom into our lives from their experience and, and help to, to prepare us and train us for leadership and make us into more godly leaders and ministers. And, and LFBI has been a huge blessing, and I believe it's done just that in my life uh, thus far. I've, I've got godly men helping me to become a godly man. I'm very grateful for LFBI. It's been a huge blessing. Visit LFBI.org to learn more about Living Faith Bible Institute. But anyway, so like Moses, he has, so he has that similar type of a background. Which is encouraging, I would think, for any you know young young believer or older believer, anybody mm-hmm. who's at any place in their walk with the Lord, can look back at their life and say, "Man, I'm a disaster. God can't use me." Right. Well, that's He can. Yeah. Should you choose to let that be in the past, the grace mm-hmm. of God is sufficient. So I think another thing that comes out of that that's that the other side that's dangerous is this idea of penance. So one one of the stories says that in order for you know this act of penance. Um, Columba had to to leave Ireland, go to a different nation, and then start, and then had to win back as many souls as he was responsible for killing. Uh, so that's that's the more of the Catholic folklore probably involved in a, probably. In a penance story, right? Yeah. So if we're going to claim his story, let's throw a little penance story in there, right? And 
remind everybody that he's as Catholic as can be. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah. So again, how these, these true stories uh, get blended in with some right. of what was rewritten by the Catholic mm-hmm. church. We don't know. But again, that same idea is true. You can go all the way back to the early church fathers, to disciples of John. You know, you can look at early, early Justin Martyr and, and other mm-hmm. early guys who allowed little things to come into their faith that ended up becoming big divisions right. in the church, right? Yeah. So even if if Columba himself had this own idea of penance, um, really all, all that idea says is that the blood of Christ isn't sufficient for this thing that I've now done. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was sufficient up until this point, but now mm-hmm. it's not. So, it, you know, it's adding a, a works component to, to reconciliation. Right, right. So, yeah. And then, of course, out of that, it just gets deeper and deeper. You get asceticism and yeah. this flesh is bad, so beat the flesh. Yeah, type yeah. Of idea. We actually um, talk about that quite a bit um, in the interview that we're doing with Greg Axe yeah. it comes up because that was Martin Luther's story. Mm-hmm. Like he didn't understand grace. And so his guilt just led him to inflict suffering until he paid off whatever sinful debt he, mm-hmm. he had incurred over time, which obviously that's a never ending game and you'll die sad yeah. doing that. So, yep. but in, so, in, in this case we're, we have reason to believe that, that he, when he gets to Scotland, he's functioning under the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And he, his head is on straight. Right. Yeah. So most likely it's that idea that somebody died and he kind of felt responsible for yeah. it, but uh, also already had, uh, you know, a vision for, for planning churches. Yeah. Obviously he'd been doing it and taking the gospel where it needed to go. So he, he goes to, to Scotland. He originally lands on kind of the South end in Kintyre. Uh, and it's said that he could, you can actually see Ireland from there. It's, it's like eight miles across the water. Mm. And so he didn't want to be uh, within view of his homeland. He felt like he should go farther. So he left that and he went farther north and lands mm. in Iona in six in five sixty three. Yeah. Now he, he went with settling. a group of guys. Mm-hmm. So there were, you know, just like any group of young men who come, you know, come up together in their faith, mm-hmm. there's a kind of a peer network of of men who want to do the exact same thing that Columbus doing. Yeah. And they called them the Twelve Apostles of Ireland. Mm-hmm which is kind of just a cool name. Yeah. Um, they clearly weren't apostles the mm-hmm. way we understand them, but they were sent ones. Right. So in that term, that version of the term of the word, yeah. apostles of Ireland, you've got this group of 12 guys that are going out to plant churches in Scotland and, and other mm-hmm. places. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that was instituted by Patrick. His method of, of church planting was that, that he would send 13, Christ plus 12. was kind mm. of the idea. So he had a leader and then, and then 12 disciples. Mm. Yeah. Cool. So... He was invited to visit Iona. Mm-hmm. Uh, describe Iona for us. Tell us about that place and, and why it was primed for the gospel. Yeah, so Iona is a really small island. Um, not a lot to it, but it was already inhabited. Uh, you had Gales who'd been colonizing there for a long time. The Gales are um, just a group of people that are tied together by language, like any group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, it's, it's a mixture of different tribes, kind of, that mm-hmm. over time formed this language that, mm-hmm. that, that united them. Right. So Ireland, Scotland, some of the British Isles were inhabited by them. Um, that term Gale was actually used by the Romans as a derogatory term towards mm-hmm. them. To they, they were pirates. They were, they were raiders. So they didn't have a good relationship you know, with, with Rome mm. outside of religion. It was just kind of who they were. Uh, but that's who, who was living there when he landed. They, they get there. They land in what is now called Columba Bay. 
Uh, it's mm. been named after him. And they just got to work. They started building, um, you know, ways to stay alive. They, they built houses, they built uh, farms, and they built their monastery. And that became kind of the center of outreach for the British Isles, all of Scotland, and, and even into some of uh, what's now, you know, the UK, other mm. parts of the UK. So what, you know, what was the ministry like? I know that what he was doing was evangel. A lot of it was evangelizing. So we have a lot of people who are unsaved, um, have not been reached yet by Christianity. They're still living maybe under the, the, you know, um, residue of the Druidic faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but he finds these people, um, called the Picts, yeah. which, um, I couldn't find a whole lot of information about them but this is a tri- this is a tribal people, yeah. I suppose maybe you know more. You can tell us. Yeah, so I like the picks mm-hmm. uh, personally. Uh, P i c t s. Yes. Picks, yeah. P i c t s. They were native to eastern and northern Scotland, which so they're they're kind of their their homeland at that time ranged from a place called Catness down to Fife. Ah. Yeah. So there's actually even still there's a a, a place in Scotland called Fife. Uh, which is actually my is ancestry. Is it spelled the same way or is it slightly different? F-I-F-E okay. is the like way Barney, that is That's like Barney Fife. Right. Yeah. yeah. So my couple generations back, we immigrated from Scotland. And yeah, the, the name was changed a little bit mm. uh, as coming in. Here, so the Picts were Aboriginal people. They were kind, kind of the, the original inhabitants, some would say. They were, Pict means painted. So okay. they were called the painted people. Um, if, you, if you Googled it and looked at some pictures of them, uh, they they were either very tattooed, and or mm. uh, would had a tradition of painting themselves blue uh, through some sort of dye. So they would dye their skin blue and then put tattoos on top of that, like the Blue Man Group. Yeah, but so your but the war, your ancestors the warrior version were the Blue Man Group. Yes, <laughs> exactly. But okay, so they're warriors. Yeah, okay, but that's, you know, that's so cool. They were also yeah, they were warriors. So they were at war with the Gales. Uh, for for a long time, mm. or at war with each other, kind of at war with everybody. Um, yeah, but so you know, part of the study is interesting for me because this could be part of my own ancestry. Wow. I can't I can't yet tie myself directly back to the picks, um, but if if I can, then I tie back to Columba, yeah. which is a pretty cool thing for me personally mm. to know that that potentially my ancestors and maybe more broadly, since he had such an influence on. Scotland. My ancestors were uh, fruit of Columbus ministry. Man, that would be cool. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe um, when you get to heaven, there'll be a bunch of tattooed blue, blue, men. Pe- blue people that you yeah. get to like hang out with and like, oh, and family. They'll, they'll be like, great, great, great grandson. <laughs> you didn't know you're the rightful king of Fife. So Fife is still called the kingdom sometimes. It's the kingdom of oh. Fife. It used to be um, a well-established oh, man, kingdom. Oh, that's cool. Now it's kind of just called the kingdom. Oh. Which is also cool. It is but, cool. Or the kingdom of Fife. So what was Columbus' influence on these people? Like, what did that look like? In short, he, he led them all to the Lord. If you want a really broad brush summary. But- and, and, t- and tell us too, this, this is something that we should talk about. We see this in scripture a lot. A household comes to know Christ mm-hmm. because one person gets saved. The whole household comes to faith. This was very true in the early church, in a tribal setting, mm-hmm. you had, you know, the leader of a tribe comes to know Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, then everybody else, that's, that's a huge influence. That means so yeah. much. It doesn't take away from personal faith, but 
the influence is very, very great, and a whole tribe will come to know Christ all at once because of this way of thinking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that's the way that the, the Pixed were and, and the people of that era, era mm-hmm. and area. Um, it, when we say tribe, it would really be large extended families. Mm-hmm. You know, we think about it even still like the, the Connell tribe or the right. Macintosh tribe. It's really just broader family networks. And so, yeah, that, that was his influence. He, he worked as a peacemaker. Uh, he would help to negotiate uh, peace treaties or quarrels between the tribes uh, mm. and would gain favor with the tribes that way. And then we get in and, and begin to share them, the, you know, the reason for peace and, and the prince of peace. And then uh, little by little, he would win um, tribes. Usually when you get the leader, you get the tribe, they'll, they'll follow him. And, and tribe after tribe started coming to Christ. And then, you know, you have fewer tribes to fight with because the rest don't want to fight anymore. And so mm-hmm. they say, well, what's all this about? Why, why is everybody changing? And uh, he ends up yeah, essentially winning uh, that entire ethnic group to the Lord. And it spills, it spills over, and the church planning work begins to spill over, and he begins to have influence in other places besides Iona. Mm-hmm. So the hub for Christianity had been with Patrick in Ireland, right? Mm-hmm. And as we're a couple generations removed, and as Columbus settles in Iona, that becomes really the center uh, of Christianity for, for that part of the world. Uh, his disciples begin to reach out to uh, the other British Isles, the archipelago that's all around, a whole bunch of little islands, starts reaching those people reaching the Gales, reaching just um, Scots, just reaching a, a, a whole mm-hmm. uh, great number of, uh, of people. Um, it was a church planting movement. It was place. a church planting movement. Yeah. So the typical idea was that um, they, would, they would bring people in and train them up. It could take about 18 years uh, for training. But remember, we're, we're starting when you're 10 or 12, and we're yeah. starting with life. Right. And then they would send them out. They would yeah. ordain them and send them out. So that was the movement. Man, very cool. Now, there's a lot of folklore surrounding Columba. Yeah. That we have to talk about. Yeah. Because it's so rad. Yeah. So tell us about Columba's encounter with the Loch Ness Monster. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is the part where everybody's like, what? Well, yeah. But it's, this is pretty awesome. This is super awesome. So apparently there was a giant sea monster. Okay. That had come up yep. out of the water. And this is what I'm here for. The, um, this is it. I'm here for this right this, now. This, this is, is the whole reason I agreed to this interview. Just so we could talk about. Was because I read about this. Loch Ness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, there was the, the story goes is that there was some giant sea monster that came up out of the water or maybe uh, was in the water and, and some pigs were in a boat and the, and the monster comes up and eats one of them. Mm-hmm. And then it comes up again to eat another uh, one of the picks, but Columba is there this time, and Columba uh, commands the the monster to to cease and mm-hmm. desist. It's like leave leave this guy alone. Yeah, and then he condemns the monster to Loch Ness. Mm-hmm. And so they say that this is kind of the either the origin story or maybe the first time that anyone has this this idea that there is some sort of monster in Loch Ness, and it gives you some context to what we believe now if you or believe or don't believe what well, we yeah, hear you, now you just said it. You said, what, we, what, what we, we believe what we hear now what is, it. what is commonly <laughs> reported now about the Loch Ness monster is that uh you know it's stuck there because Columba in the name of Jesus was able to command that to thing ban, to ban away. him to the 
no. stop eating the pics. I'm trying to lead him to Christ. Right. You demon yeah. monster of the sea. Yeah. That's how it was. Um, if you, which I highly recommend, um, not if you're driving in your car, but later, uh, I recommend all of our listeners to go to Google Images and type in Columba banishes the Loch Ness. Yeah. And look at the photos. Mm-hmm. There's, they're not actual literal photos. They're drawings. There's no photos of this ha- happening, but they're draw- there's drawings. Mm-hmm. And there's one that, where he's holding out his hand and he's pointing and it looks like he's grounding the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> yeah. Like, go to your room. Exactly. Go to your room. I, I don't want to see your face. I'm uh, just infuriated. Uh, yeah. And his arm is extended. It's the funniest thing ever. But there's all these images, these images from antiquity yeah. of, of Columba banishing the Loch Ness Monster. Right. You can't come out until I say so. <laughs> and then he dies. And yeah. Loch Ness Monster just is stuck. like, uh, just bro, can I get out of here? Yeah. I ate all the fish. Yeah, he's no one's no one's got really any good sightings of the Loch Ness anymore. I think that's that's basically are people over that? People over the Loch Ness thing? I don't know. I thought there was one fairly recently. Really? I mean like in the last decade recent. Yeah. I mean I, I just figure with sonar You'd like the technology, like we could find out real fast about this thing. You'd think so. But who knows? I don't know. I'm gonna ask Columba. I don't one think day. we're gonna see anything like Loch Ness. Until Leviathan. Yeah. I don't know. We may see some weird things. We're going to see some weird stuff. Up. Maybe maybe Loch Ness shows up. Hey, so maybe this is one of our takeaways. Maybe future missionaries are going to need to be banishing some monsters. Right. Yeah, maybe. Maybe this comes back up. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, we'll be raptured out and we won't be a part of that. Before those come. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so back to what's actually important, which is the yeah. mission. Why is Columbus so important? Um I mean, it's a, this is a fun story and there's a lot of yeah. kind of, it's a lot different than the other stories we've told so far because, you know, it's so long ago mm-hmm. and there's like folklore about Loch Ness surrounding this guy, mm-hmm. right? So it's, you know, in some ways it's hard to take serious and it feels just very, very distant, but there are influences and there are things that we should take away. So much so that maybe you even feel it in your own family heritage, mm-hmm. right? So tell us why Columbus is so important. Why is his legacy important and why should we learn from him? Yeah, as you said, uh, it's it's I think important to me because he influenced the kingdom of Fife, mm-hmm. and that's part of who I am. But a lot of us who come from, you know, kind of a a, a general European ancestry, mm-hmm. will probably tie back to to Patrick or Columba and 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 the missionaries that they sent out influencing mm-hmm. Europe. Um, we should know about him because he you know he planted hundreds of churches. He he is a, a man who in the face of a a dominant religious society decided that it was worth it to follow god mm-hmm. right and so he has to go against not just religious society but government governmental as well mm-hmm. right at this at, by this point the the church at rome is is married to the state is becoming um was becoming everything mm-hmm. the sole authority right and so uh he held to scripture that was contrary to what was being um, put forth by the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. He held to beliefs that were contrary to what was being put forth by the Catholic Church. Whether you have to face Loch Ness in the future or not, you absolutely will have to face this. Mm-hmm. So every missionary needs to be prepared to live a life like this because uh, governments individually and collectively will only continually become 
more and more contrary to the Christian position Mm -hmm. and more and more contrary to the Bible itself. So defending scripture and defending, um, you know, what the Bible says will be just a part of what every missionary will have to do. Right. So that's, you know, broadly. Generally, again, uh, a couple days from now, I actually leave for Ireland uh, with a a small team uh, from our church. Uh, We'll get to go see Eric Brown, who's a missionary there, kind of reclaiming Ireland. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. that's exciting uh, for us. So, you know, what led up to this study for me was that as we go into different parts of the world and and take uh, our people and we, we take missions trips, part of what I want to make sure that we do is that we understand the history of that part of the world and yeah. Christian history there. Right. So I've been walking through this with our team and I want them to know, look, you're going to a place that has a very strong Christian history. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some cool stuff that happened there. Uh, and, and, you know, it's cool to see a man uh, like Eric who's there trying to, to do the same thing that, that Columba and Patrick did. And yep. it's to break down walls uh, between, between clans and, and, and win them to Christ. Yeah. Be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, James, I'm so thankful for these interviews. They're so much fun. Like mm-hmm. unpacking the history behind these people is, is a lot of fun. And it's one of the things I'm really enjoying right now yeah. is studying up on people I've never heard of. Um, but, but Columba in particular, you know, despite all of the things that we don't know in the world, in the world that he lived in, this way of living was very countercultural. The mm-hmm. whole local church thing, the church planting thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it reminds us that that despite the hurdles that we face as a people, you know, a lot of times we think of what we believe as as dying off, and and the odds are stacked against us. But despite all those things, we have a calling on our life, and and we need to live it out to the fullest. And right. And so this is a, re- a reminder of that. Yeah. So thank you. Absolutely. And, and I'd reiterate that one point we made earlier and let the past be the past. Like, yeah. You messed up, big deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, give it to the Lord and know that he can use you with yeah. whatever you were. Right. Uh, as Moses or as Columba. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Thank you, James. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you, Postscript listeners all over the world. Uh, we're so appreciative of you and, and your time that you spend with us every, you know, every week, every Monday. Uh, we love you and we're grateful for you. And we do want and hope and pray that episodes like this are edifying to you, that they're interesting to listen to, that it's a lot of fun, but at the same time, you're feeling challenged in your faith and and you're hearing a calling on your own life. Uh, the goal of the Bible Institute, the goal of this show, the goal of all of our professors, the goal of Living Faith Fellowship is to invest discipleship into people so that they recognize a calling on their life, uh, that they might go and minister the gospel to the lost world. It's all around us in your community. And uh, whether you go to Ireland or, or whether you go across the street, uh, God wants to use you. And as James said, uh, your past and um, your your past sin and your past struggles should not hinder you or keep you from living out that call. But we love you and we're grateful for you. If you got questions uh, about LFBI, visit lfbi.org. See what our program of study looks like. Find out who we are, what we're about. But we want to invite you to come and join us for classes uh, each and every semester. And uh, we want to see you grow in your faith. We love you and we hope that you have a wonderful day. God bless. See you again next week. Thanks for listening to The Postscript. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review in order to help other people find our podcast. If you value this show, 
Please help us continue creating content by supporting Living Faith Bible Institute at lfbi.org support.